as I said at the beginning, we're looking at the Apostles' Creed. And so we're going to say that again so we get our mind focused on uh, what the sermon is about today. Remember, it's on the third part of the third statement coming up. Uh, So let's read that together, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the spirits in hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits in the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Wow, can you feel the power in that? When we as believers say those words together and we feel them and we know what they mean, which is what we're learning, by the way, in learning community, that you can come to Thursday, Friday, and or Sunday. (laughs) And so it's just important. You could just feel... God's presence as we spoke those words together. Victoria Sabo is going to get us started on the sermon now, so let's go. So let me start off with a prayer. Uh, God, thank you so much for this day. Lord, you are mighty. You are powerful. Lord, we thank you so much that it's by your spirit that, God, we understand. So, Lord, we thank you so much for your spirit being here in abundance. May we understand, may we lean, may we be transformed inside out, God, from what we hear today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, today I'm talking about the first part, which is Jesus' conception, birth, and life on earth. So um, we're going to start in Luke 1, 26 through 27. It said, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a village, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled in saying and, try, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be, and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end and Mary said to the angel now how will this be since I'm a virgin virgin and the angel answered her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called Holy Son of God Jesus is the biological son of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is born to a virgin 
teenage mother in Mary. Joseph is his stepfather. He is the firstborn son to God, Mary and Joseph. Would this have made sense to people of that day? Because it don't make sense today, right? Could, could they have believed that a baby could be supernaturally be conceived by God? What would Mary's neighbors have said about her? What did Jesus, I mean, what did Joseph think when he saw her pregnant belly for the first time? At what point do you think that Mary second guessed what her decision to carry our Lord and King? Jesus' conception was outside of cultural norms. Jesus' birth, Luke 2, 4 through 7. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which, he is, which is called Bethlehem, because he is of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swallowing clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, well, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Jesus wasn't born in a well-furnished room with family and friends standing around him. He was born in a stable, in a manger. His first visitors were marginalized shepherds. His birth did not signify to the world that he was a divine king or the son of the abundant God. In this part, Jesus grew up in, Jesus grew up in a poor community. Jesus wasn't rich. He wasn't in Bethel Hills or Bethel, what's this, Bethel Park or North Hills, or anything like that. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. It was a small farming town that eked out a living. It was regarded by people in Jerusalem and Judea as unrefined and corrupted by their Gentile neighbors. Even his would-be disciples said, could anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was a part of a marginalized community. From birth to his adulthood, Jesus lived in a community with ordinary people. And so I've defined marginalized because it's a not so nice word for some people, but how I've defined it as to be marginalized is to think, say, or act as if a person is unimportant or powerless in positively affecting change in society or is identified by society as a member of a lower ranking social group. Philippians 1, I'm sorry, 2, 6, and 7 says, Who, although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God, as one with him, possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, but empty himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity 
by assuming the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He became completely human, but without sin, being fully God and fully man. Jesus is able to understand how we feel. He can relate to us in every circumstance of our lives. There is nothing that seems outlandish to Jesus because he can, he, that he cannot understand, nothing that he can't understand. He can understand the cause of every temptation we have. Due to his birth and life on earth, Jesus is able to relate to all of mankind. Jesus came as the oppressed to the oppressed, which allowed everyone, allowed him to relate to everyone. So I'll leave y'all with these questions. Are we willing to be marginalized in the earthly realm culture? Are we willing not to look good to obey God? Are we willing to be counterculture as it relates to our faith, our marriages, singleness, our parenting? Are we willing to be unusual, especially in caring for the least of these? He came as the oppressed to the oppressed to set us free. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was a pris in prison, and you came to me. Jesus was unexpected and radical. Have you ever done anything unexpected and radical? Have you? I did. I went into prison. This first time, 20-some years ago, I decided I was going in with a Kairos ministry into prison. Now, why would someone want to go into prison? I had people at work saying, you don't want to go into prison. Why would you even go there? Those guys are in there for life, some of them. Why would you want to go there? And I said, at that time, God's called me there. Because at the time, it was very radical for me to do that and very unexpected. Because I was, you know, I was pretty cool just sitting there in the pew doing my thing, being Christian on Sunday, acting like, you know, being good in the world, showing them that I was a Christian during the week, you know, did all that stuff. But we're looking at the line in between what Jesus was doing between his birth and between his death, his life here on earth. It was radical and it was unexpected. He did everything that no one expected. So we're going to read Luke 4, 4 through 18. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report of him went out throughout the surrounding country, and he taught them in his synagogue, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written, The Spirit of God is upon me, because He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent to me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering to sight to the blind, and to set liberty those who are oppressed. The truth is, Jesus is radical and unexpected. He didn't do the status quo. 
there was, in, as we looked in that first verse, there were already stories about Jesus happening before he even come to Nazareth. But as Jesus, Jesus was always two steps ahead of everybody. So we're going to jump two verses from what I just read to verses 19 and 21. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes were fixed on him. Meaning that people were waiting to see what he was going to say next. Then he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? The people are going, what? It's like, mind-blowing. What's Jesus saying? It's been fulfilled in your hearing? What the prophet Isaiah was saying? Yes, he was being very radical and unexpected. And soon it started to sink into them. And as the story goes, you can read it later on your own time. The people wanted to kill him right then and there. But Jesus slipped through their hands. Now we can talk about all the unexpected, all the radical things Jesus did. We could probably fill up two years of scripture, summaries, sermons, teachings, learning communities. But we're not going to do that. We're going to look really at verse 18 because Jesus is the good news. Do we know what the good news is? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now to proclaim good news to the poor, I had to look it up to see what it really was. So the good news of the poor is this. To bring good news, to announce glad tidings. In the Old Testament, it was, it was to bring some, something of good value to those who needed to hear. Maybe it was a war, and there was victory. So somebody was running, bringing the good news. But in the New Testament, they used that same slogan, good news, to talk about the good tidings of great joy of the kingdom of God being at hand, being right in front of them to proclaim the anointing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. So Jesus was coming as that. So we can be God's hands and feet because Jesus told, tells us in Luke 7, 22, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The death hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. This is when the disciples of John were questioning whether who Jesus was. And he goes, aren't you watching what's happening? He was being radical. He could have said, he could have said anything, but he told him what was there. is isn't what he tells us, isn't it? He also said to Nathan, who asked him. And then Nathan responded, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, is it because you saw me under the fig tree earlier? Going back to when he called Nathan, the prophet. 
For I tell you, you will do greater things than I've ever done. So we, each one of us, can be more radical and unexpected than Jesus. But we've got to do that. So listen to Luke 4.18 once again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. To set, He has set, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So we are to proclaim the good news to the poor. You know who the poor are? Anybody that doesn't know the richness of God's glory, of what God's got for us, of those who know that the kingdom of God is at hand. So our words can proclaim that. So we can be Jesus' mouth. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Everyone we encounter every day is captive. They're captive by the things of this world. They're not free to do what God's called them to do. Recovering of the slight sight to the blind. I think the meaning in this word is both a physical thing, but also a spiritual thing, because how many of us are spiritually blind? Until we hear the truth, and we apply the truth to our lives. And to set liberty to those who are oppressed. So I looked up the word oppressed. Oppressed means bruised or broken. Isn't that our theme for this year? Here, the Pastor Herbs told us, to pray for the broken and bruised, to give them a place to come. That's what we're supposed to do. See, we do have all the answers for the world around us. We need to be that light and that salt that draws them closer to God. Back to Matthew 28, 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And I need, I'm going to leave you with this. Matthew 10, 5 through 8. Then Jesus sent out twelve, instructing them, Go among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim to them as you go, The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. You will receive no pay for this. God wants us to do it without getting that reward. We need to live like Jesus, not our normal status quo life, but a radical, unexpected life. And you know why? Because Romans 2.9 tells us, we all have the Holy Spirit living within us that is similar to what Jesus had. Amen. Did you hear that? We have the Holy Spirit living within us similar to what Jesus had. And then a, a verse that's always somewhat taken out of context, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He does strengthen us. We've got to live 
unexpected, we got to live radical. Thank you. Matthew? That radical nature of Jesus' ministry was already beginning to change the world in the east in the in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. The in those three years that he was active, he had gathered up not just those twelve disciples, but he had gathered up thousands who had heard his words and believed. For the God fearers and the pious Jews who saw this ministry, they were beginning to understand the kind of Messiah Jesus was. There will always be those who expected a conqueror, who expected someone to march on Rome and depose the false god that was the Roman emperor, emperor and, and put God back on the earthly Roman throne. But over the three years of Jesus' ministry, it was so radical, so unexpected, the people were beginning to understand that he didn't have to do those things to change the world, that his, that his teachings and his ministry was already beginning to make a difference. And then on Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem at the height of his fame, at the height of his popularity, at the height of his ministry. And then later that same week, he gathers up his disciples for dinner. And he says, on this night, one of you will betray me. And I'm, this is a story that we've heard many times before. Lenten Easter season is coming up every year since however long it's been since you joined the church. Every Lenten Easter, you hear this story. I want to focus on the disciples' perspective. Because we just talked about Jesus' ministry, and we know how the story ends. We know the point of the passion and death of Jesus. But I think if we take a step back and look at it from how the disciples were experiencing it in the time, it, that was a perspective I was trying to get at when I was studying, and I found it powerful. So he tells the disciples that he's going to be betrayed. And if you were at Learning Community two weeks ago, we talked about um, Jesus and the disciples in the storm. And there was a great storm, and these disciples, many of whom were lifelong career fishermen, believed that this storm was not only dangerous, but that they were certainly going to die. And Jesus wakes up, says, Why are you panicking for? Goes up above deck, and the storm is gone with a, with a, with a word. And I want you to keep that image in mind as we go through the story of the Passion. Because that, to me is I think what the disciples expected. I have to imagine that after three years of following Jesus, the disciples had learned their lesson and learned that Jesus could make the storm go away with a word. And so I'm going to go through some scriptures here about Jesus' arrest and trial. And, and, um, and I'm going to keep going back to that illustration of the storm and how the disciples were thinking to themselves. I know, I know where this is going. And every step of the way, Things just kept getting worse and worse. So we start in the garden. After the supper, he takes the, takes the disciples to the garden, and he prays by himself and prepares himself for what's to come. And then Judas arrives with a mob of Roman soldiers, and they come to arrest Jesus. Here we start in John chapter 18. Jesus says to the soldiers, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these, let these men go, speaking of his disciples. Um, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom 
whom you give me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, a Roman soldier, and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given to me? Imagine the, the confidence Peter must have had to attack a Roman soldier in Jerusalem. The Romans and the Jews, especially in Jerusalem, did not get along. They, they would, there were people in jail, who we'll get to later in the same story, who were in jail for inciting riots against Rome, for attacking Roman soldiers. For, for, and so for Peter to attack the soldier, already we understand that Peter is like, I'm with Jesus, no harm can come to me. And so he's like, I'm doing right. I'm going to attack the soldier. I'm going to save Jesus. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And Peter must be like, I did that for you. <laughs> so the disciples, this, at that point in the story, the disciples scatter. And they must be thinking to themselves, Jesus has a plan here. I have faith in him. I followed him for three years. I know what he's capable of. This is not going to be enough to stop this ministry. This ministry is important. This ministry is going to change the world. This is, this is all going to work out for good. So the soldiers take Jesus into the city, and he meets before the chief priests. In Mark chapter 14, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? They had gathered up many witnesses who shared false testimony about Jesus. But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And again, the disciples weren't necessarily here at this point, but if they were, they must have been thinking to themselves, aha, they have no evidence against him. He's been arrested. Now they're going to set him free. And this whole thing was just a big misunderstanding. Jesus is going to make this all work out for good. Jesus says, I am. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what other further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And all the high priest condemned him as deserving death. So I was like, okay, he didn't get out that time, but it's not over yet. He's going to get out of this. I'm sure he is. Then the company brought him to Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding him to give tribute to Caesar and that he himself as Christ is king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate and the chief priests in the crowds, oh, then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I have found no guilt in this man. And again, if the disciples were there, they would have said, see, the Romans find no guilt in him. He's going to be set free. But then in verse six, um, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mock him. Then arraying him with splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. Again, he goes to Herod, and Herod, while he does mock him and condemn him, Herod finds no guilt in him. Herod doesn't say, okay, Pilate was wrong about this guy. This guy's crazy. No, Herod, Herod mocks him. Herod's like, wow, you managed to piss off your own high priests. But he's, he's, he, he, puts, he puts purple robes on him and sends him back on his way. He doesn't, he doesn't arrest him. He, he keeps him. He, 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 does, he does the same thing that Pilate does, just a little bit more rudely. 
And, um, and again, the disciples would be like, oh, see, this is all just a farce. This is all just giving Jesus a chance to meet with the governor, to meet with the king of Israel. This is all working out for good. And then Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you have brought me this man who was misleading the people. And after examining them, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I, will, I punish and release him. He'd already been punished at that point. He's all, he'd already, his clothes had been torn. He had been beaten when he was with Herod. Pilate's like, time served. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for which they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. And he answered, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And the disciples were like, it's all over. We did it, guys. We made it. For he perceived that it was out of envy the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them to Barabbas having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So I was like, you, what are you doing, Jesus? You're, you're, this, this is getting out of hand now. They still have faith at this point, but they're like, you had, a chance to, you had a chance to be freed. You had a chance to prove your popularity among the Jews, to prove that they respect more than they respect the high priests. Why would you allow them to release Barabbas instead of you? So then, I don't have the verses here, but we know what happens next. He has a cross, carries it to the hill. They beat him, they mock him, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and then they hang him up to the cross, and they nail him there, and they let him hang, and it's terrible, it's painful. Everybody gathered around is weeping, because at this point, even though the crowd had turned against him, there were still many who believed, and watching this were just distraught and confused and feeling, feeling betrayed, feeling like, how could we have possibly been misled? We've seen this man do miracles. How could he possibly be hanging here? In Mark chapter 15, verse 32, men continue to mock him. They say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. So, again, they mock him. They, as, as the crowd is here gathered, talking, weeping about how could this be possible, the people who don't believe are like, if this man is the God you say he is, then he'll come down from the cross and save himself. And the disciples are like, oh, that's a really good idea. <laughs> the disciples are like, of course. They put him up on the cross, then he comes off on the cross, and they prove that he's more powerful than not only the high priest, prove that he's more powerful than the Romans, more powerful than this cross they hung him on. Oh, Jesus, you're so smart. <laughs> and then it doesn't happen. And the disciples there, and the three Marys are there, and they watch. As in verse 33, in the six hours, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, when in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Meaning that he's going to come down. The angels are going to come and rescue him. Someone ran over with a sponge of wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether or not Elijah will come take him down. Even now, even as they watch him screaming out in agony, there, there are still people in the crowd who are convinced that this is all some sort of trick. This is, just, this is just him playing up his suffering before he proves his divinity. 
And then verse 37, and Jesus uttered out a loud cry and breathed his last. Now we know what happens next, but they didn't. And if you were the disciples, you're, think, you're thinking back to that boat in the Sea of Galilee. And you're thinking, Jesus, I've seen you stop a storm with a word. This, this crucifixion, this kangaroo court they put you through, is nothing compared to the power of a storm. How could you have let this happen? They, they continued to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It's not like they, they threw up their hands and said, oh, wow, we spent the last three years of our life following a fraud. But they still felt betrayed because they thought they knew who Jesus was. And then in the end, in the moment of their, of their darkest hour, they felt like they all of a sudden knew nothing. They're like... We followed this man for three years. We have no clue what's going on here. There are times in our life where we face tribulations and we think back to the disciples in the storm and we're like, God, you could make this go away. And we get frustrated when he doesn't. Why did Jesus not come down from the cross? Why did Jesus allow the high priest to condemn him? Why did Jesus allow Pilate to free Barabbas instead of him? At any one of those points, he could have set himself free. Even back in the garden, he could have given Peter the strength to fight off the 50 Roman soldiers, and they could have walked right out. We heard in Randy's story, the story of him in Nazareth three years earlier, where a crowd had attempted to arrest him and throw him off a cliff, and Jesus walked right through them as if they weren't there. He could have done the same thing in the garden. He could have walked right past the 50 Roman soldiers without any bloodshed. But he didn't. Because God's plan was not what the disciples expected. Even after those three years, when they finally began to understand, oh, he's the poor come to the poor. Oh, he's the marginalized come to the marginalized. Oh, he is a radical. He's not here to conquer the way the Romans conquered. He's doing things his own way. He's doing things God's way. Even though they understood that, they still weren't ready for that final step of, and so he has to die. They couldn't, he explained it to them many times, even back in the garden when Peter says, we, we read the verse, this is the cup, am I not to drink from the cup my father's prepared for me? He says it right there. I'm, I'm arrested because this is my father's will. How are the disciples supposed to believe that? How are they supposed to understand that? The same things happen in our lives, but at a much smaller scale. Sometimes they don't feel like a smaller scale. Sometimes when our loved ones die or when we face financial hardship of the highest order, we, we feel in this same level of despair the disciples must have felt. But it's, it's all coming together for good. And especially when it doesn't feel like it is. I hear so many Christians, when they see something bad happen, they're like, this is chaos. This is Satan's rulership. This is... Um, proof of our of our godlessness. This is pun. This is divine retribution, divine punishment. Is that is that what we see in the Gospels? No. The, we, yes, God has wrath. Yes, God. God ha, has um, has his laws that he must that he that he chooses to follow that he sets for himself. He has standards and qualities and immutable things about himself. But God does everything so that we may be closer to him. There's nothing that happens where 
we are in trials that God did not prepare for us. In the Old Testament, the book of Job, we see Satan, the accuser, come to God and say, let me attack Job. And God allows it. And in that story, we see the kind of things that Satan does when he is let off his leash. And they're terrible, awful things. But then at the end of the story, when God arrives, he says in no uncertain terms, nothing that happened to you was without my command. Nothing that happened to you was because Satan did that. And I'm like, ooh, I wish he hadn't done that. It's like, no, that's not how God works. The crucifixion, as a capstone to the ministry of Jesus, takes this wonderful ministry that, was, that would have been enough to change the earthly realm. But God's spiritual plans were so much bigger than what the disciples could have predicted. It's a sad ending. Many, uh, everyone in this room knows what happens next. And Herb will be back next week to talk all about it. <laughs> Wasn't that awesome? Thank you, Victoria, Randy, and Matthew for such a great sermon um, from three different perspectives and three different parts of Jesus' life. Right, We learned that Jesus was marginalized his whole life. We learned that he was radical and unexpected. And we learned that he died. And there was so much in between all of those things that we also know. Um, so yes, come back next week for the rest of the story. Um, even if you know it, you don't know it all. <laughs> We're still learning, right? Um, so let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this lesson today. We thank you for those that prepared it and presented it. Lord, we ask you as they poured themselves out for us and for your message that you fill them back up again. May we each take this message with us, Lord, and contemplate it. Think about your life and how you lived it and how we are to be like you. Let us even just concentrate this week on the fact that you died for us before we even get into how you rose again. Lord, we just ask you to be with us and continue to bless us as we go through this week. In your son's name, amen.